Now we will continue our study through the pastoral epistles, and we've come as far as the second half of Titus. We are going to wrap that up this morning, and we'll be starting in Titus 2.9. Last week we saw Paul giving these instructions to Titus about how the different demographics within the church should be acting. We saw Paul talk about the young men, the old men, young ladies, old ladies, um, and today he's going to talk about bond servants, uh, how they should relate to their masters. He's going to talk about heretics, how we should relate to heretics, and give us a lot of good insight on that. So again, we will see some of the, the same things that he told to Timothy in those epistles, Uh, just in a little bit of a a different context now to Titus. Starting in verse 9, he writes, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Again, I I would point you back to 1 Timothy 6, to read more about how bondservants should relate to their masters, and also 1 Peter 2.18. They both talk about this exact same issue. Um, It is also interesting that they give the same reason for bondservants obeying their masters. And that is, as Paul says to Timothy, he says, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Okay, that's right along the lines of what he's saying here, uh, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So they may hold it in high esteem. As employees, uh, relating to our employers, we don't want to treat them poorly. We want to treat them well. And Paul says in Timothy, especially if they are also believers. If your boss is a believer, then who benefits from you being a good employee? Other believers. And that's awesome. That's what we want. So he says here, just be good to your your employers. Be obedient, uh, well-pleasing, not answering back. Now, of course, you're probably not going to answer back out loud. You're going to do it under your breath or to your coworker or something like that. But That is also the issue that we're talking about here, the attitude. We need to relate to our employers with a good, healthy, obedient attitude. Not answering back, whether under your breath or out loud. Not pilfering. Not pilfering means to not embezzle or keep back something for yourself from your boss's goods or whatever he has, even the time. You've heard of stealing time just piddling away your time when you should be working, Uh, not pilfering. We should be respectful of those things, but showing all good fidelity. Uh, That just means be a faithful employee. Don't uh, do anything that would cause your boss not to trust you, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So we saw last week as well that we should be living what we are speaking. If we are professing the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, 
then how we act should match up with that. There should be no difference in what we're saying and what we're living. And we see that echoed again here, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So we treat our bosses well because Jesus was doing the same thing. Uh, We know that he grew up as a carpenter. He learned that trade from his dad. I'm sure he would have treated his dad well in that, being a type of employer to him. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Verse 11, he writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Back up to verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We know that Paul was the apostle of grace, using the word grace over 120 times in his writings in the New Testament. Uh, He certainly would have had this issue of grace close to his heart. We know that he was the one who was causing men and women to blaspheme the name of Christ at the point of a sword, uh, hauling off women, children, fathers from their families, uh, having them executed for being a Christian. If I was coming from that background, I guarantee you grace would be at the forefront of my heart. Um, And, you know, it is kind of funny that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we want grace. But when we see our sins on someone else, we want justice. Okay. I don't want justice. If I had justice, I would be apart from Christ for eternity. That's just We've sinned, and we've fallen short of the glory of God, and because of that, we can't enter heaven. We can't have fellowship with God. He's holy. We are very much unholy, um, and that chasm can only be, be closed, and we can only have fellowship with God through the blood of his Son, and that is what we're talking about here. That is the grace. It's something we don't deserve. You know, mercy is not getting something you deserve. God has shown us mercy in not giving us death. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. God has shown us both mercy and grace. Uh, Grace in that we are joint heirs with Christ. Now being brought in to the family, born in to the family of Christ, We can be co-heirs with him. And that is grace. And that is what Paul is talking about. The grace of God that brings salvation. That grace that closes the chasm between us and our creator. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This same grace that we're talking about has been poured out to every man. Every man has the opportunity to accept this grace 
and be adopted into the family. The unfortunate and the sad part about this whole deal is not every man will accept that grace. Um, And that is sad for us as Christians to, to grasp that, but it's true. We all have family members that we witness to. We pray fervently that they would accept Christ, that they would be born in. Uh, But the truth is, some of them will not accept. Um, And it's not that the grace hasn't been extended to them. It's not that they are not able to accept. But they will choose not to. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, in the present age. The grace of God was an abused doctrine in Crete, uh, much the same as it is today. Uh, The Cretans were living sinful lives, and they would use grace as an excuse for this, Uh, just overly taking advantage of what God was offering them. And we see Paul write about this as well in Romans. Uh, Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Of course not. That is not the point of this. Uh, That is not what grace is for. Um, Every Christian is going to slip up. Every Christian needs grace just as much as the next guy. Uh, But we should not be taking advantage of it and use it as an excuse for living a sinful life. Verse 12 says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Teaching, uh, the Greek word for teaching here means both to teach and to discipline. Um, Also to instruct. It carries all of these meanings with it. Um, When I read this, I kind of thought of a first grade teacher. You know, of course, part of their job is teaching. Um, but they also have to discipline their kids. They have to instruct them. They got to corral them. Okay, you can't have a class full of first graders running wild in the classroom. That tends to not work out very well. Um, but you discipline and you teach, and that is the idea of this teaching here in our text. Teaching and disciplining us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly. So Paul is saying that grace doesn't just save us, which it does, but it also teaches and disciplines us. Of course, we were saved by grace, but we also grow in grace. Just like Peter said at the end of his second epistle, he said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is something that we can grow in as well. What is this grace teaching us? He tells us what it's teaching us. He says that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We see Daniel chose to refrain from the delicacies of King Nebuchadnezzar. He did so 
because of what he thought was right. And it turned out that that was a great choice. In the end of the 10-day trial period, we'll use quotes on that, uh, that the steward of the king afforded Daniel, that Daniel and his three friends looked better than all of the young men who were eating the king's delicacies. Um, I think there was definitely some uh, divine intervention there. And Moses had the opportunity to live with the Egyptians in all kinds of worldly glory, uh, in all kinds of delicacies and richness. Instead, Moses chose to live with his people, the Israelites, and to suffer with the Israelites. Now, obviously, most of us won't be faced with such a blatant decision as that. You know, live with the Egyptians or live with the Israelites and suffer in slavery. Okay, but we all the time, we have similar decisions to make. And whether we see it as such or not, uh, I can't really say, but truly, each decision that we make can either propel us toward God or away from God. Um, We can choose to satisfy the worldly lusts and live ungodly, or we can choose to deny the worldly lusts and live in the Spirit. Every day we do make you know, hundreds, if not thousands or hundreds of thousands of small decisions. And you put them all together and that will tell you which direction you're heading uh, towards God or away from God. These can either be used to serve our fleshly desires or to serve God. He says we should live soberly. And that just means with a sound mind and temperately. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is another thing that is brought on by grace. We are saved by grace. We are taught and disciplined by grace. But also by grace, we can look forward to the second coming of Christ. Now, if I lived under any type of legalism, I can guarantee you that I would not be looking forward to the return of Christ. Under legalism or under this strict adherence to uh, denying the flesh um, overly and heaping up different regulations on myself that are not placed there by God, in doing that, um, it's very discouraging. It, It will put you down because we can't stand up to the, the expectations that we even set for ourselves. Um, legalism says, no, you're, you're not perfect. You're a sinner. I'm sorry. But grace says, yes, you are a sinner. But you're blood-bought by Jesus Christ And now you're his child. He can restore you because of grace. And you know, (laughs) it is 
a bit funny because grace just keeps setting us back up on our feet and sending us on our way. You know, I can get knocked down. I can slip up in something, go to Christ, repent of that. And by his grace, he sets me back in the correct direction. He sets me back on my feet after I've been knocked down. He is the the intercessor between God and man. Yes, you're a sinner, but you're blood-bought. And I'm going to restore you and set you back on your feet. We are justified through grace. And a little helpful quip for you to remember what justified means. It's just as if it never happened. God sees us just as if we have never sinned. If we are covered in the blood of his son, not only does he forget our sins, he forgets that we were ever sinners in the first place. Uh, And that is a beautiful thing to me. We are justified in his eyes. And this is the reason that we can look forward to his coming. It's the reason that we don't have to say, God, please wait just a couple of months. Let me get this sorted out before you come back. But we can stand before him as his child, as co-heirs with him, regardless of what I've done in the past. And I'm not proud of all of it. Regardless of that, I can stand before him and look forward to his coming. If I thought I was going to be judged harshly at his coming, I wouldn't look forward to it. But this is the blessed hope that we're looking forward to. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a Granville Sharps rule right here, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's affirming the deity of Christ. He's saying the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, It should not be read as great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is affirming the deity of Christ here, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Paul was in Thessalonica for about three weeks, three Sabbaths, before being driven out of that town. He, in that time, planted a church there in Thessalonica, and later he wrote to them to check in. Uh, We have those epistles, they're 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. There's not a chapter in either of those two letters that does not deal with the second coming of Christ, that does not refer to it in some way. And even further, when Paul writes to them, he writes as if they'd already been instructed on the things of the second coming. Okay, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. You already know this stuff. But I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. 
I'm going to remind you of these things. If Paul thought it was important enough to teach this brand new church in Thessalonica about the second coming of Christ, while he only had three weeks with them, I think it is likely important enough for us to do a little study on it as well. This little passage here that we just looked at tells us what grace has done in the past, what it's doing in the present, and what it's doing in the future. In the past, we were saved by grace. In the present, grace is teaching and disciplining us for godly living. And in the future, we will be looking forward to his coming because of the work that grace has done in our lives. The grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you'll see a peculiar people. Okay, that doesn't mean that we need to dress strangely to be set apart from the world. doesn't mean we have to wear our hair in a certain strange way to be set apart. But peculiar is, um, as the New King James says, a special people. We are simply to be set apart by how we live. And truly, if you look around in the world, it's evil. The people in the world living towards the worldly lusts, they look a certain way. And we as Christians should be living in the spirit, not in the flesh. And because of that, we should appear differently than all those in the world. We should be set apart from them. We should be special in regards to how we live. Purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Not good works for salvation. An important distinction needs to be made. Good works for salvation don't exist. There is one work that is effective for salvation, and that is the work that Christ has already done on the cross. Paul is, he has just said, that the grace of God is what brings salvation. So he's not saying now that uh, good works are going to get you into heaven. He also wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast. So again, we're not talking about works for salvation, but we're talking about works from salvation. If genuine faith is in me, then I'm going to have a desire to do good. If I simply come to the realization that Christ gave his life for me, a sinner, then the least I can do is give my life back to him in service. And that is what we've come to as Christians. And it's out of that attitude that good works will inevitably flow if we have this genuine faith. We know that James wrote, um, faith 
without works is dead. Not barely breathing. It's just not there. A genuine faith brings about good works. The word works here is work in a general sense, deed, doing, labor, anything that is accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind. That is the strongest definition for this word works. It doesn't matter what we're doing. You know, you can be a carpenter. You can be a, a guy that pours concrete. You can be a preacher. You can be a teacher. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We must do it for the glory of God and do it well. Good works. In building the tabernacle, God appointed certain workmen. He gifted them with certain abilities. Um, and he set them in position in time and history uh, and location to be able to build this beautiful structure, the tabernacle. He said, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, talking about Bezalel, in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, design artistic works to work in gold in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship, coming from Exodus 31. God anointed Bezalel to do all of these things. That was Bezalel's good work. That was his purpose uh, for anointing Bezalel. God also anointed other craftsmen to carry out specific tasks that were needed in construction of this tabernacle. God said, I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. Exodus 31, six. And God still anoints people to carry out his specific works. He puts people in careers. He gives people talents and abilities that they need to serve him. And he gives people opportunities. Kairos in the Greek. It's a specific season. He anoints these seasons for you to serve him. I pray that we would use what we are given. Talents, abilities, careers, opportunities to serve the Lord. Zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So Titus, teach these things, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now he's going to expand on this rebuke with all authority here in just a few verses. Uh, We'll see how you're to deal with heretics in the church. Let no one despise you. He said the same thing to Timothy, but Timothy's was a little bit different. He added, because of your youth. So to Timothy, he said, let no one despise you because of your youth. Timothy was a younger guy, probably in his early 30s when Paul wrote that to him. By the time of Paul's second letter to Timothy, he would have been about 40 years old, and that would have been about the time that 
the Greeks of that day would have been seeing him as a more mature man. So we don't really have any references to Timothy's youth in the second epistle. Let no one despise you, Titus. Chapter 3, and the last chapter of this letter to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. 1 Peter 2, 13-17 also talks to us about being subject to governmental authority. And this is certainly included in the rulers and authorities that Paul writes here. To obey, to be ready for every good work. It is also ironic that both Peter and Paul are in prison for not listening to their own advice. Okay, They are literally in prison for not being subject to rulers and authorities. So how do we reconcile that? Well, they're really right where they needed to be. When Rome said, you need to stop preaching the gospel, you need to deny Jesus, and you need to stop being a Christian. When Paul and Peter came into contact with that, that is where they drew the line. They said, no, I will not be subject to the rule of man, but rather the rule of God. Um, And this is where we should draw the line. Um, If government tells us, deny Jesus, stop being a Christian, that is where the line is drawn. And um, that is very uncompromising. We, we cannot give up our faith uh, for any man. And I hope that we don't see the day that this happens in America, although I do think that it is approaching fairly quickly. Uh, we see things going on in Canada, especially, um, and that hits pretty close to home. We see certain chapters that are outlawed that cannot be preached in Canada. Talking about sin, you know, sin and sinners. It's offensive to people, and they don't like it, and they want to ban it, thinking that it deprecates. It does not, it doesn't boost people's self-confidence. But I will tell you what boosts my self-confidence. It's that Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was slain on my behalf. That makes me worth something, and that makes you worth so much. The most valuable thing in the universe, the blood of Jesus Christ, was shed on your behalf. That's worth a lot, but you have to get through the sinner part before you get to the saved part. To be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, Showing all humility to all men. That's not saying can't show humility to ladies. Show humility to ladies. To all humans, all men. To speak evil of no one. Has anybody spoken evil of someone? Unfortunately, I have. Um, That's not what we're called to do. Speak evil of no one. To be peaceable. Don't go around looking for fights to pick. Gentle. Don't go around punching people in the face, showing all humility to all men. These are 
generally good things to be doing as Christians. If we're living a God-honoring life, these things are going to flow from us. If we have Jesus as the center of our lives, the preeminent position, that cornerstone of our life, these things will flow out from that. And this is how we will stand out from the world. This is how we'll be viewed as a peculiar, a set-apart people. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I was. There was a point in my life when I can attest to being every one of these descriptors. Um, And I know that everyone in here can agree with that. We have been foolish. We have been disillusioned by the world, trying to live up to worldly standards, uh, not caring about the things of the spirit, only the things of the flesh, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, I, we've all been there, but by the grace of God, I've been yanked out of that life. And I use such a descriptive word as yanked (laughs) to get across the point that God came for me. He pulled me out of that. I remember when things really changed in my life. It was like I was yanked. Um, Just a flood of emotions all at once. Um, And the foolishness, the deception melted away. I came into a new life. And we'll see regeneration talked about here in just a second. And that is literally what it is. We are dead now to sin, to the pull of the flesh. We are alive in Christ, in the spirit. And understanding that Christ died for all men, that grace is available to all men, puts a certain importance on every human life. And no matter how broken that life is, how in shambles it is, we know that Christ is capable of putting it back together. And I've seen it time and time again. I've seen it in my own life. And I can testify to that fact. Christ is capable of putting your life back together, just like he did mine. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. According to his mercy, he chose to reveal his love towards us. It's not because I was so great that he said, oh man, That Kaysen guy is so great. I've got to send my son to die to redeem him. I wasn't great. Um, I was dark. I was depraved. And in that state, in my sinful worldly state, God chose to send his son to die for me. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
we were still opposed to God when he demonstrated his love for us. That makes us worth a lot. John makes it very clear in his first epistle that there are two sides and two sides only. You are either with God or you are against God. And before you're regenerated, born again as a believer, you're against God. And that is the simple fact of the matter. There's no middle ground and no gray area uh, to slide into. There's a sharp line, either you're with God or you're against him. Even while you were opposed to him, before you came into the family, before you were born again, he loved you enough to lay down his life. And this decision was made before he spoke everything into existence. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God chose to create us in spite of the sin that we would bring into the world. He knew that we were going to to make it difficult. He knew everything that you and I were going to do in our lives. And yet he chose to send his son to die for us. Washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the new birth. Jesus talked about the new birth to Nicodemus, saying, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Well, Jesus, I've already been born. Do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? Is that how this reborn works? No, no. It is interesting to me that in illustrating this idea of rebirth, it's being born again, Jesus did not choose the worst sinner in Israel. He did not choose a prostitute. He did not choose a murderer. He chose the most religious man of the time. Nicodemus was one of the top teachers of the Pharisees. He was one of the most religious men in his area in his time. That is the man he chose to illustrate this idea of rebirth regeneration. Almost saying, you think that your works are going to get you to see the kingdom of God? That's foolish. Your works can't hold a candle to the the marring that sin has done on your life. It is only by the blood of Christ that we are regenerated. Uh, There's no amount of works that we can do that can measure up to that. Washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I thank God for that. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We see this idea of becoming heirs. We are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ, according to the hope of eternal life. We talked about this hope 
that we have in eternal life uh, recently. Uh, This hope is a for sure kind of hope. We are earnestly awaiting this eternal life with our Creator. Um, It's not the hope that's in the world. Gee, I hope this happens. It is a earnest expectation. We know that this is going to happen because the author and creator of the universe has said this is going to happen. If you are born again, you have eternal life with me. This is the blessed assurance, the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Paul uses this little saying, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. He uses that phrase three times in his pastoral epistles. This is the last time that we see it used. And it's saying, this is worthy of all acceptance. This is something that is true and that I want you to accept and that I want you to affirm constantly. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And believe me, we have to be careful to maintain these good works. They don't just happen on their own. Um, The flesh is always gnawing at us. It's always clawing. We have to deny ourselves every day, pick up the cross, and follow him. Be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Truly, good works are profitable to men. There's no denying that. Um, If you do something good, someone is benefited from it. You may even be benefited from it, but it is profitable to men. Here, verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. All right. Very bold, uh, very cut and dry words. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. These things truly are unprofitable to us. And there's a, you could write a book of all of the silly questions. You know, how many angels can fit on the, the head of a needle? Where did Cain get his wife? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? You know, you could go on and on. And these things are not things that really need to require much of our attention. Uh, we need to be focusing on things that edify one another, that build each other up, and that do not cause disputes, contentions, strivings, strivings about the law. The Jews loved to argue about the law. That was one of their favorite pastimes, uh, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Powerful words. This is what it means. If there is someone causing a division, he's causing contention, and that word divisive is the same word for heretic. Okay, it's, it's the same root there. 
it means someone causing a division. And that is what heretic means, uh, division. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So the first time he says, hey, I don't believe in that Jesus is God stuff. Uh, Jesus was not God. He was a nice guy who did some good things. Take him aside, say, hey, man, that you're really off base there. Of course, do it in love. I need to pull you back on track. This is what the Bible says here in Titus. It's affirming Christ's deity. Uh, here's some other scriptures to back up this core doctrine of the faith. And so there's two options. He can say, okay, okay, I see that. You know, I, I agree with you. Back on board. That's awesome. If this happens a second time, still causing this division, uh, still sticking to his guns, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Then after that second time, we can reject that person um, as being a heretic. Um, and of course, you know, we want to see someone come back around. We don't want to see people fall away. Uh, we don't want them to, to make contentions. We don't want them to make divisions. But this is the biblical way to deal with someone like that. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. You're not condemning them by dismissing them. Uh, it says that they are self-condemned. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Uh, that they may lack nothing just means that they would be provided for. They would not have any needs. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, again, hammering home this point, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so Paul wraps up this letter to Titus with some housekeeping items. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. So Paul is going to winter in Nicopolis. He's going to huddle down there and he wraps up saying, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Closing with grace. What a great closing for Paul, uh, the man who no doubt had grace closest to his heart than probably anything else. The apostle of grace, the blasphemer of Christ at first, and then meets Christ and is shown the wonderful grace that we're all afforded. With that, we've wrapped up the pastoral epistles, how we should relate to others in the church, how church leadership should relate to those in the church, the qualifications for church leaders, and how we should uh, exhort the older women, younger women, older men, younger men, how we should deal with these divisive people, and 
a big theme throughout all three of these letters is don't waste your time. Don't waste your time worrying about things that don't matter. Don't cause divisions over silly things. Don't be divisive. Spend your time on the things that exhort your fellow Christians, that build people up instead of dividing and tearing them down. Let's go ahead and wrap up in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed for this morning.